this morning. Good to see each of you today. We are in the, the book of Acts, so if you'll be finding Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3. While you're turning there and finding the third chapter of the book of Acts, I know it's probably announced, but let me just remind you, this is Easter week. We are uh, planning uh, three services, uh, counting next Sunday morning. But Wednesday night um, at the Bristol Road location, Kevin Fowler will be speaking on the life of Christ, especially his final week. And uh, that'll be this Wednesday night, 7 p.m. at Bristol Road. Then Friday night, here at the Field House, we will combine uh, both congregations and we will have Holy Communion, Good Friday service. At, uh, that'll be this Friday, 7 p.m. here at the Field House. And I will share with you on his death, the death of Christ. And then, of course, on uh, this Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, uh, at both locations, we will be speaking to you on the resurrection of Christ. So his life, his death, and his resurrection. I hope you will join us and invite family and friends to these services um, and also have uh, some little bulletins that gives you times and schedules and locations if you'd like to pick one of those up. And we're also planning a baptismal service uh, next Sunday morning. If any uh, of you would like to have more information on that, you can see me. I've got a handout sheet here that will help you to know uh, what it's about and give you some uh, information and scriptures on that. All right, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 3. We have emerged from chapter 2. That's the good news. <laughs> uh, chapter 3 of the book of Acts is primarily the story of a miracle. Let me just begin by reading one verse. Verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. I call this the first miracle. It's not exactly the first one. We know there were miracles before, like uh, in Acts 2.43 speaks of uh, uh, signs and wonders done by the apostles. But this particular miracle is the first one that is described in detail. This one, uh, he, they give a whole chapter to this one. There's a couple of reasons for that, but um, it is quite an attention getter. Uh, this man has been sitting at the gate of the temple for... Um, Many, many years. He's been lame from birth. He's over 40 years old. Never walked a day in his life. Let's pick it up in uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, they would start counting at about 6 a.m., so it makes it about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were going up to pray about 3. And a man, verse 2, lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, called the beautiful gate. There he would ask alms of those entering the temple. So seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, verse 8, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. (laughs) Here's a man who's never walked a day in his life, over 40 years of age, according to chapter 4, verse 22. He's well known at the temple because everybody, tens of thousands of people going through those doors in and out constantly uh, would know his face, know his story, his sad circumstance. And he got attention not only because he was well known, but because of his reaction after he was healed. I mean, I guess I would have similar reaction. But it says he was walking and leaping, just twirling around, jumping up and down, praising God. That tends to get your attention when somebody's doing that. And the, a crowd begins to gather around Peter, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people were uh, utterly astounded ran together in the porch area of Solomon's temple. And so Peter, seeing this crowd gathered, like any good preacher, says, I think I'm going to (laughs) preach. And so I was just looking at this passage this week, and it seems to just divide up like this. First, there's the preacher. We'll look at that in verse 12. There's the congregation he's preaching to, verse 13 to 16. And then there's his sermon, the basic outline of his sermon, verse 17 to 26. I don't know if we'll finish all of it, but let's jump into this. First, look at the preacher, what it says about the preacher, verse 12. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? There are two things that Peter says you should not assume is true, that you should not attribute this miracle to. One is our power. And the second is our piety or our good religious 
uh, activities. Uh, King James Version says our holiness. And sometimes I think it's good to visit this idea and remember that if there are results, it's not because the preacher is either powerful or pious that is necessarily holy. But miracles come because God is merciful. Not because the servant is anything. And how about the fact that we often, when we go to pray for things, a lot of times we start out like this, Lord, I know I haven't gone to church every Sunday, or I know I'm not worthy of this. And so we are making the mistake of thinking that God is looking at us. No, if a miracle is to happen and you are not worthy, ask Him anyway. Because it's not your power and it's not your holiness that's going to bring that miracle. It's going to be the mercy of God and the goodness of God. And if you're serving God and you don't feel worthy and you don't feel qualified, there are many times, and I, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but there are many times that I come to the pulpit and I don't feel qualified to preach. But I am here not to preach my defeats, but His victory. Not my story, but His story. And that is what Peter is doing here. As a matter of fact, if you'll look down there, one of the things he says to them in verse 14, we'll get to this in a minute, but he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Well, guess what, Peter? About six weeks earlier, the same word used as he's preaching to them, he himself was doing, denying Jesus. John 18, 25, Simon Peter was standing warming himself and they said, aren't you one of the disciples? And he denied it. And I was looking at the, at the Greek text. The Greek text has the exact same Greek word for what Peter is doing as for what he's telling the Israel they're guilty of doing. I'm just t telling you that sometimes we have to learn to pray and serve and preach under the umbrella of the merits of Christ. Otherwise, we will constantly be disqualifying ourselves and the accusing enemy will never let us do a thing for God. So, the preacher attributes not anything to himself, but look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus. And that's what service and and fruit and miracles is all about. Let's look at the congregation. Starting in verse 13. He's already called them the men of Israel in verse 12. And in verse 13 he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, in healing this man, he's glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. He's going to describe the congregation with three things that they did that aggravates their sin. 
and their guilt. Let me give these to you. In verse 13, he says, the last phrase, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he, Pilate, had decided to release him. So that's the first aggravation of their sin. And that is that the Jew, these first century Jewish people had demanded the crucifixion when even a pagan governor said, I find no fault in him. And they said, we want him crucified anyway. Here's a pagan governor who saw justice and would have carried it out, but you demanded that he be crucified. So that's one thing. Another one is in verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now, one of the things that would happen is every Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified at the Passover festival, uh, they would release as a part of their customs uh, somebody from prison. A guilty man. They, as, as a matter of custom and to celebrate Passover, they would release someone found guilty in the courts. So Pilate said, why don't we release Jesus? We have, we're, you're going to release someone. And they said, no, give us Barabbas. And it calls him a murderer in verse 14. You denied the holy and righteous one who never did anything wrong. He went around doing good, raising the dead, healing the sick. And yet you said, give us Barabbas into our community rather than this Jesus. See, that is an enhancement and an inflammation of their guilt. And then a third thing, a rather odd phrase, verse 15, you killed the author of life. You killed... <laughs> the source of life. And then God raised him back up. It's like a sick man kills the doctor who the only one with a remedy. How strange is that? So he is describing his congregation and I, I was looking at this and I thought, hey, I've got it good this morning. <laughs> I mean, I know y'all got your problems, but... but uh, Peter has quite a crew here to preach to. So they not only aggravated their sin in what they did, delivered him when Pilate didn't want him delivered, but how they did it, they released a murderer back into the community, and who they did it to, the very author of life, the Son of God himself, the source of life. So they have brought great guilt upon this first century generation of Jewish people. Tremendous liability here. And the effects are going to come when the Romans come in and ultimately destroy Jerusalem and capture and scatter 
the entire nation of Israel in 70 AD. Now let's look at the sermon starting in, in verse 17. The congregation is very guilty. The preacher is unworthy. The congregation's guilty. And the sermon, though, he starts out by uh, two things. Verse 17, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Uh, that is, you didn't realize what you were doing was that bad. I mean, I, I don't know that that's a great way to start your sermon by calling the congregation a bunch of doofuses. But <laughs> I know you're ignorant, all right? And then he says, verse 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he's thus fulfilled. Whoa, that's a little stunning there. The worst sin in human history, the unjust murder of the Son of God was a part of God's plan. It was fulfilled. In other words, your worst failure was God's plan A. <laughs> That will, that'll quicken some hope. And he says to them, starting in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back, that is, turn back to God. And he gives them three reasons why they should, even though their sins are great. Their guilt is the heaviest. That generation is the heaviest guilt of any generation. Matthew 23, Jesus said, you're going to fill up the cup of your forefathers with, with the guilt and liability, culpability. You're going to fill it up, the measure of sin. So this generation is in worse shape and condition and has, has, and has brought about the, all, the worst act of offense to the God of heaven than any generation. And here's what Peter says to them. Verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back, that is, turn back to God. And he gives them three reasons for doing so. Here's three motives. And this is, this, these three motives, starting in uh, verse 19, are actually for uh, sinners, bad sinners. Now, I don't know if we have bad sinners I don't know but this is for the worst of the worst okay if it's for the worst of the worst then those who are maybe not so bad you're probably going to get in too but this is for you who sometimes feel that you are the worst sinner in church okay there's hope Here's the first thing Paul says to the worst sinner, the chiefs of sinners. Verse 19. If you turn back to God, verse 19, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's number one. Blotted out. Just erased. No matter that you've just killed the Son of God. 
Your sins can be blotted out. David, in Psalm 51 verse 1, after he took a man's wife and had him, Uriah, killed. David did this in the Old Testament. He prays in Psalm 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness and tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. That's the same word used here, to blot out. If you will turn back to God, no matter how deep and dark and secretive your sin, an awful offense to God, if you will turn back to God, He will blot it out as if it never was there. Praise God. Praise God for His tender mercies. The second thing Peter says will happen if you turn back to God is verse 20. And times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing will come. And that's in verse 20. The, the Greek word, anasaki, is, is the original language. And you can see the word psychology in that. Psyche uh, means soul or, or the personality. Ana is a little prefix which means up. And the word refreshment here, the Greek is anasaki, it means to lift up the soul. Refreshing reviving and he will if you will turn back to God your depressed soul will be given a boost and you will be refreshed and renewed mentally and and emotionally your the best thing that you can do for your psychological condition is turn back to God through Jesus Christ. It will make you psychologically renewed. And you'll be normal like me. So that's, that's good. That's all good. Paul uses this word, refreshed, when he's in prison in 2 Timothy 1.16. And they, these Roman prisons were often dark and damp. Uh, uh, lonely, cold, and Paul says this is the and this is the last book he ever wrote, Second Timothy, and he writes in Second Timothy one, he says, "May God grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he came when I was in that prison, and he oft refreshed me." Think of that. Uh, he would bring a sandwich or perhaps a cloak and throw over him. He, he would come and spend some time with him and pray for him and give him news from home. And he often refreshed me when no one else would, but Onesiphorus would go to Paul. Now that's what God promises to do when we turn back to him. Verse 20, times of refreshing may come. And let me just point out one quick thing. The word times, it's plural. It's, it's not just one 
when you become a Christian and then you have a happy time and then it's back to normal. No, times, plural, waves of refreshing presence from God. He says, look how you have been, you have aggravated the sin, the worst offense in history. But if you will turn back to God, he will blot out those sins and make you refreshed again and renewed in your spirit and your soul. He promises one other thing in verse 20 and 21. He says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then here's the third thing. And he will send the Messiah. Now this is the King James Version. Which before was preached to you. He will send the Christ, the Messiah, who before, before this was preached to you. You've heard about the Messiah. You heard the sermon. Now you need to meet the person. And even though Christ is in heaven now, Peter says, heaven welcomes him, receives him, embraces him, celebrates him. But there are times, according to Peter, that if you will turn back to God, God will send him to you. He will visit you. Jesus will come to you. Jesus said that in John 14, 18. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There are times when you know what you need? There's nothing going to help you except Jesus. Person of Jesus. If you will turn to God, God will send him to you. And Peter should know this. You remember how we talked about Peter denied Christ. And he went back to fishing. And Paul makes a reference to Peter that is found nowhere else in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14 or 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. It says, Jesus was buried, he was raised the third day in accordance with Scripture, and he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Cephas is another name for Peter. When did he appear to Peter? We don't know. There are several appearances of Jesus after his resurrection to the disciples, but there's nothing where Jesus went to Peter individually. But Paul says the first person Jesus went to after his resurrection was Peter, Cephas. And it's kept secret. But Peter knew, you know what? If you will turn back to God... He will send the Messiah to you. He will come to you. You, th you might think about the Apostle Paul in Acts 9 when he's going to persecute Christians and suddenly someone appears with great flashing lights of glory. It knocks him off of his horse and Paul says, Who are you? And he, this voice comes back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he was converted right there. Jesus came to him. 
Or you might think of John in Revelation chapter 1 who was exiled onto the island of Patmos. And on that island in Revelation 1, 9 uh, through 15, he says that I heard this voice. I was there for the word of God on the island of Patmos. And I heard a voice behind me and I turned and I saw lampstands and one in the midst of those lampstands. And here's how he described him. He said he had a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head was like was white as snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like polished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. That was Jesus. And John fell at his feet. See, Jesus can be in heaven and in his glorified state, Jesus can move freely anywhere and everywhere and at all times. God, here's, here's what God promised. Give me that verse again uh, from Acts 3. On um, Acts 3, he will send the Messiah to you. Verse 20. Nope, one more down. And that he, God, may send the Christ who before was just preached to you. That is Jesus whom heaven must celebrate or welcome until the time for restoring everything. There'll be a time for restoring everything. But right now we get visitations. We get healing like the man in Peter's day. But there will be a time of restoration of all things. But until then, God will send Christ on particular occasions when you need him the most. There's an instance of this also with Paul. The, Paul met Jesus when he was first converted in Acts 9 and then in the, the last thing he ever wrote, 2 Timothy 4.16, he's going to stand before Nero, the Caesar, and he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. He's going to court. So nobody wanted to be associated with Paul. Everyone deserted me, Paul says. May it not be charged against them. But he says, however, the Lord stood with me. Oh, the Lord stood with me. Now that is what the Lord does. God will send the Christ to you in times of desperation or sorrow or crises. The faithful Father will send the faithful Son and He will help you and strengthen you through that crisis. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've been a Christian for many years and I've had a few visitations from Jesus. I know that kind of puts me in the mental illness group, but I've had Jesus come and talk to me, okay? In John 14, Jesus said, there's one time when I, you can count on me being there. It's when you die. John 14, 3 
I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. And I'm going to come and receive you to myself. A personal visit from Jesus on your deathbed. When you turn to God. What wonderful promises for the worst of sinners. He will blot out your sins. Times of refreshing will come. And God will send him to you in the hour of need. Man, I'll take that. Praise God. That's what I want. I trust that's what you want. And we have invited people to be baptized next Sunday morning. I've got some uh, sheets on baptism here and information so that if you would like to make that commitment, turning back to God, no matter how bad the sin is, how secretive, how dark it is painted, Turn to God. He will blot out your sins. Times of refreshing will come. And He will send the Christ to you in days of crisis. Kevin, you come. Let's have our offering this morning. Ushers, if you'll be ready. Let's, let's pray together. And we will then worship with our tithes and our offerings. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you today for these wonderful promises from the Apostle Peter. Help us, I pray, to turn to God, to turn back to God, to put our faith in Christ that we may be forgiven and strengthened and refreshed and know the person of Jesus, not just hear the sermon, but know the person. And may he be praised this day. Amen. Praise God with me. Bring an offering and come into his presence, he tells us in the Psalms. <laughs>